My name is Alexander Erilaupma and you're listening to the Fotografiska Tallinn podcast. My guest today is Joram Roth, who is a fine art photographer, entrepreneur, investor in media and real estate, the chairman of the board and majority shareholder in Fotografiska Holding AB and much, much more. We had a beautiful conversation about his life, the world of art, becoming involved with Fotografiska and the current state of the world. You can find him at joramroth.com, that's Y-O-R-A-M-R-O-T-H.com and by the same name on Instagram. We had some technical difficulties in the beginning of the recording, so you're going to drop in on us just as Joram is introducing his work. Do enjoy. I'm an investor, and I invest in cultural businesses. So whether that is something like Fotografiska or whether it's Neue Haus, which is a business that uh, I'm invested in, which is a place where people work who make culture. Um, I'm invested in nightclubs in Berlin, in dance halls, in businesses that focus on art fairs and publishing, everything is shut down. Everything is shut down and um, I would like the world to restart soon. Beautiful. And because for most of our listeners, I'm guessing they probably won't be aware of you too much. So maybe you can just give us a little bit of history sure. of uh, who you are, uh, where you're from and what led you to become a part of uh, Fotografiska. So sure. So uh, my name is Joram Roth and I'm 52 years old. And I know I sound very American, but I'm actually born and raised in Berlin. I did go to the American school here, though, so I got the accent early. I have been sort of working in culture all my life. Um, I studied the business of media. And as part of studying the business to media, I had to do some journalism. And after getting my you know, 90 words a minute type speed down, I didn't want to do much more. And so I was able to fulfill my, my journalism requirement at university through photojournalism, which was something I'd already been doing. I'd already been doing photography in high school. And at university, I got to study under a photographer called Larry Fink. And I learned a lot. And it sort of kindled in me forever this idea that photography is an art form and a language of its own. I shoot very different than Larry. I mean, you know, I, but what I took away from him certainly is this emphasis on hands. Um, I've always been fascinated by hands, and I think they communicate more than the eyes do. Nonetheless, <laughs> at some point, then uh, my family came to me and said, this is all very nice with the art, but we are business people, and you're going to have to do business. And I did that, and I liked it, and I built companies. And uh, first company I ever built, I did a record label in Berlin, did techno uh, back in the early 90s and had a really wonderful time um, And um, while working in the family company, which was real estate. Um, I then moved to California and worked in tech there, and I actually ended up building two tech companies. One was the licensing engine, uh, Rightspring was the name of the company. We licensed photography images for commercial use. And the other was a back-end technology for producing game shows and talk shows. So I've always been, you know, sort of around the edge of cultural investment. Um, I came back to Europe in the early 2000s after selling those companies and um, got into uh, the hotel business, which I really loved because it was financed like real estate, but you run it like an operating company and you have this constant opportunity to improve on it and make it a little better and just, you know, respond to what the needs are. Ultimately, I then took a break and doubled back down on photography. And I said, you know, I need to take a break from business. I've been doing it since I was 20 years old and I'd had some luck and I had some success. And I said, you know, I'm just going to take a sabbatical, I guess, and just 
make art. We just make photographic art. And I liked it. And I, like an entrepreneur, I wanted to understand why things work the way they do. Why, how do, how do galleries work and how do museums work and how do fairs work? And there was this idea that I think a lot of artists sort of stumble into this and they don't really understand how, and there's this association that artists should somehow be above this and should be in this rarefied field where they don't think about how these things work. But I wanted to know. And so I, I, I doubled down on this. And the one thing I also realized as I talked to more and more super serious artists, I got to meet all these great artists at, at art fairs. And so on. the one thing they always talk about is business. They're actually all pretty competent business people. And they really, you know, understand what it, you know, they make art in teams. And, and, and so they, they, they talk about money because you actually need it to make things tick. So long story endless, I got to a point where I had a pretty good grasp on how the photography world worked, both creatively from what I was making as an art and how that worked as a business. And that's when I met Jan and Peer Broman, who were the founders of Fotografiska Stockholm. And I started working with them and I invested in that company because I saw a real opportunity in how to show photography in all its forms, whether it's documentary or fashion or fine art, and whether it's the big names or whether it's the emerging talent, it seemed like a really great thing to do. And I saw that there was substantial opportunity around that because you could take that idea and take it across the world and you could take it and, and build all this other stuff around it. So obviously, Fotografiska has a really great restaurant. And I think that's a real important aspect of what Fotografiska does because I think culture defines it defines itself with food. If you want to fall in love, if you want to meet friends, if you want to have a business conversation, you do it over a meal. And so having that as core part of the business was important. And then what I also really pushed as I got more involved in the company is this idea of building community, of having membership, of having programming, of giving people a place to meet and to gather and to and to experience culture together. Okay, that's very beautiful. Do you, do you see uh, Fotografiska as a lifestyle brand? I don't know what a lifestyle brand is. I probably not. I don't I don't I don't know what a lifestyle brand is within that context. I mean, I think of a lifestyle brand as like Supreme, like which is about, you know, skate and surf culture and things like that. No, I don't think that Fotografiska is a lifestyle brand, but I do think Fotografiska is a cultural brand. Uh, why do you think right. that the brand of Fotografiska, whatever it is, why do you think it works? I think there's an appetite in the world for people to consume culture. I think we're, I think everything seems branded now and whether it is, you know, fashion or uh, sports or all these things, there's a tribal instinct to be part of something. And Fotografiska answers a particular tribal call, which is we want to be around people like us, the you know, people who want culture, people who are culturally curious, people who want to travel, people who want to eat. Um, There's a lot of tribes in our life, and you can be part of multiple tribes. I'm not a big sports fan, but I get why people love Hatta BSC, our Berlin team, right? I understand how people feel close to the university they graduated from. I understand why people want to associate with their particular groups. And I think Fotografiska is really one of the first cultural tribes and that's where we're every city that we go to people resonate they get it they understand what we're trying to do they come and join us and they become members and they come back for all the events and the programs that we do and they come back to see the photography that we show and uh, do you think with everything that has been going on in the world for the past year uh, you said that hopefully uh, starting april we can get 
back to normal? Do you think some ways in which we absorb culture in uh, the ways that we uh, enjoy art, do you think some of those things are going to change permanently? Or will we see like mostly going back to normal? I think in the specific question of how we consume art, I think we're going to go back to normal because I think the one thing that we've all had enough of is looking at screens. At this point, we're spending all our free time looking at Netflix or at TikTok, and the rest of the time we've got Zoom in front of our face or work that we're doing. I am tired of being bombarded and radiated by screens. I want to get out. I want to be amongst people. I think as we built Photographisco over the years, we've always said our competition is not other museums. Our competition is Netflix. The thing nowadays is to try and get people off the couch and to get out. And I think right now there's a huge desire for people to get out. You know, we tend to tent pull our year by saying, okay, hey, you know, I had a great summer trip. I had a great winter trip. That's not going to happen immediately. I think we're all hungry to get back to that. But I think the first thing we can do is get out. Now, I'm also an old nightclub kitty, and I think that kind of stuff, concerts and clubs, that's not going to happen immediately. But this first taste that we get of our newfound freedom to go to a museum and to stand and look at a piece of art on a wall, I think we're all hungry for that. So I think that's going to come back really strong. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I really, really hope that it goes that way. I'd like to add something to that. Let me let me add something to that. I think there's another issue here, which is I think there's been this desire to try and move art online and to sort of satisfy our desire to get in touch with our members and our guests or if you're a gallerist or if you're a museum or however you you you, you want to you want to be out there and you want to continue showing the art that you have. You want to continue it some art you can sort of do online, but some of it you can't. And I think especially photography. I think if we live in a world in which we are bombarded with thousands of images every day, whether they're as part of advertisement or a news feed and so on, to slot photography into that very same medium doesn't work. It, it, it renders it less important. And I think the power of photography, the way that we work with it at Fotografiska is this idea of putting it up on the wall and having a very different viewing experience. That does not work on an iPad. It doesn't work on a laptop. And it certainly doesn't work on a cell phone. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Regarding all of that, the past year obviously has been uh, interesting, to say the least. But uh, I'm pretty sure guessing from your uh, work with uh, nightclubs, with uh, real estate and so on, that uh, your past year has been uh, different than most. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, about your past year and what were like the main main focus points? My last year has been difficult. You know, it's been hard trying to respond to COVID without having a clear sense of how things are going. Over summer in Europe, it looked like we were in the clear. We had reopened in Sweden. Fotografiska was doing well. We actually were at about 80% of what our usual traffic looked like. Um, in Berlin, the businesses, the clubs were not open, but, you know, the restaurants were working and so on. So we got to a point where we thought, all right, Maybe we dodged a bullet and then fall came and everything really got very hard. It's difficult. I'm not going to lie. You know, I've created value over the last 10 years that has been whittled down and it's going to take a lot of work to bring it back. But that's, you know, the nature of being an entrepreneur. And, you know, we live to fight another day. I'm optimistic. And what is the role of something like Fotografiska during these difficult times? Because obviously it's been very polarizing and nobody has clear answers. And uh, Fotografiska is uh, something that, uh, you know, shows different perspectives on life and uh, like... uh, 
inspiring a more conscious world is what we have like written yes. above our, our door. And so what is what is the responsibility of somebody like or something like Fotografiska during very, very difficult and polarizing times? So I, I'm very proud of how our various teams handled that particular responsibility. Look, we are not a journalistic organization. Our role is not to cover both sides of the story. We have allowed or we allow ourselves this luxury of having an opinion. Um, in New York, for instance, when Black Lives Matter happened in response to uh, the George Floyd killing, we're not there to talk about both sides of the story. We are very clearly there to illustrate the difficulties that it's been to be African-American in the U.S. And so what we did is we we immediately made both our digital platform and our physical building available. We worked with photographers in the New York community who went out and documented the protests. It was great being able to have a regular feed showing what is going on in our community in New York. We, during the Black Lives Matter protests in New York, we were able to open up our lobby and make it available for the protesters to have Uh, clean bathrooms to have a place to charge their phones. Frankly, it was super hot, so we had air conditioning. Then we were able to provide people with waters and beverages and, you know, to be a part of the community, to support them as much as we can. We completely redid our exhibition program, whereas a lot of other museums still say that they're actually not doing any new programming through 21. We, within a few weeks, completely tossed out our program and said, we are going to redo our exhibition program. And we came back in September with shows featuring Andres Serrano, who did um, a show called Infamous, which was about racism in the United States. We did a show with Martin Chola, who's a very famous photographer, and we did a show with him called The Exonerees, which is a, a an interview series of photography and voiceover interviews about people that have been on death row in the United States, often for 5, 10, 15, 18 years, uh, even though they were innocent. We did a show with Naima Green documenting her community in Brooklyn and in New York, in greater New York. So we were responsive, you know, and this is the power of photography. You can use it to illustrate. And because we have both a digital platform that obviously has a much bigger reach than the physicality of the building, but we also have a building, we, I think, responded very well. Um, and the same goes for what we did in, in Stockholm and what was done in Tallinn. There was thought and there was engagement and that matters. Just before the lockdowns happened, uh, I had planned to visit New York to uh, do an interview with Lena Iris Victor, who we had here in Tallinn during that time. And I used mm-hmm. to live in New York City years and years and years ago, and it's one of my uh, favorite places on the planet. It's just such an amazing city. And now right. seeing everything that happened in a very short amount of time, there are many people in New York who have said like they feel that the same New York is never coming back. And for me personally, I'm very, very interested to see what is going to happen in the art scene. How is New York going to recover? And uh, and like, is the city going to have like a completely new image? Uh, what do you think about that? So I am super excited about what's about to happen in New York for probably all the wrong reasons. But yeah, look, so I think what happened in New York now is that an awful lot of people that were living there you know, for career reasons and so on, have left the city because living there with two kids in a small apartment, paying for extremely expensive daycare or private schools or so on is soul crushing. So what does that mean? Rents in New York, both commercial and residential have gone way down, way down. Um, whereas big companies are doubling down. Facebook just signed a huge lease for the entire old New York library. They're coming there with, you know, several thousand employees. All these companies are there. New York's going to become younger again. 
New York's going to become younger again. New York's going to become funner again. Look, I lived there in the 1980s, all right, which I didn't understand at that time, but in retrospect was sort of a glory time. I lived there from 1983 until 1990. I was a teenager. I was going to high school in New York City, and then I went to university in New York City. I got to do some cool stuff. That stuff doesn't exist anymore. There are no nightclubs in New York. There are no huge you know, free spaces that you can do stuff in. I'm not sure that stuff's necessarily coming back, but New York City is going to be younger, and it's going to be cheaper, and it's going to make it a lot funner. What do you think about the techno scene? Because this is something that I can personally say I'm very happy to be a member of, uh, to say the least. <laughs> and uh, and uh, especially in Berlin, I, I've myself never been to Berlin, but many of my friends live there. And uh, obviously everyone in the techno world knows that it's uh, it's the number one place to be. And do you hope, do you feel that we can get back to like having <laughs> how can i say this normal raves and normal parties again yeah absolutely we're it's definitely going to come back um and it may not come back immediately and it may take a while but it's 100 coming back people want to gather i think people have been dancing to drone and drum music for 12,000 years we are coming back to that that's not going anywhere now i don't know that it's going to come back to new york because nightclubbing in new york was over the last 20 30 years always kind of lame with investment bankers and vip tables and guest lists and so on berlin is a lot more inclusive and egalitarian than that um you know you want to get past the door person just look like you're there to have a good time a lot of people can't figure out how to crack that code but just look like you're there to party and then you can come in Um, but yeah, I think that's definitely coming back and I think Berlin will remain that, um, because there is just, a, a, an understanding here that that is, uh, what we do. There's also, we founded something here called the club commission. I'm not a member of it, but we as Berliners in the club scene, uh, are, you know, proud supportive is it in which we were able to showcase to the city, the substantial amount of revenue that is generated by that particular culture industry. And that that metric system is something that we've taken to other cities or that they have taken to other cities to help them understand just what the impact is of the nightlife world. Beautiful. And uh, globally, like obviously everything that has been happening, we haven't had the chance to like come out of it yet. But do you feel like there are lessons that uh, we can learn from the last year and lessons that we're willing to learn? <clears throat> well, I'll tell you what, I'm a little pessimistic about that. I am, you know, uh, a citizen of the world and I want to, you know, do my part. But I'll tell you, after having seen what happened and the destructive and selfish nature of how people have acted everywhere and responded to echo chambers within their own social media feeds, I can tell you that we cannot rely on our governments to help us solve major problems. So for those of us who have been separating our garbage and, you know, buying the right car and so on, hoping to sort of, you know, push global climate change along, but really realizing that big governments will have to do the heavy lifting for us, that's not happening. That's not happening. And so what that means is we actually have to take greater personal responsibility in how we think about the environment and what we do, the choices that we make within our companies, within our personal choices, and the way that we vote in our cities. And the same thing goes for racism. You know, again, I sound very American, but I'm German and I grew up in a world in which everybody sort of looked like me. I'm Jewish. So there was always this thing where I 
no, there's ways that people think of me differently, but on the face. So when you look at America, you really see a very heterogeneous society with people from all parts of the world. And you have a responsibility as somebody who runs a company to say, I need to make sure that everybody is represented. And these are conscious choices that, that, that we have to push ourselves to, to remind ourselves that we have much greater personal responsibility on everything that we do because we cannot rely on our governments to do it for us. I couldn't agree more. That's a very, very, very beautiful to hear somebody else uh, think along the same lines. Uh, in my personal life, I've seen, as I said before, so much polarization. Like if I would meet somebody in person that has slightly different, uh, differing opinions from me, I could have a perfect conversation with anybody. And we could pretty much, if not agree on everything, we could at least see the other side's perspective. And what I've seen over the past year, especially on social media and mostly on social media, is that you can have a slightly different opinion than somebody else but you're in a matter of seconds you're labeled like this or that and people are so uh, so easily distracted by everything that is going on that it's so easy to get angry it's so easy to hate somebody else it's so easy to uh, disregard somebody completely and i've tried really 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 hard over the past months to not contribute to that, to try to talk to people, especially if I have an argument with somebody on online, uh, somebody that I know, I try to meet them in person. I try to tell them that, listen, I don't care if we have different perspectives. I th still think that you're a beautiful human being and uh, you deserve to live here as much as I do, even if you have uh, differing uh, opinions from mine. But It feels like I can do that, my friends can do that, but but it seems like the, the direction in which the world is going is very much opposed to that. Do you see, like, what can we do in our daily lives? How can we com uh, communicate with other people? What should we do? What should we not do to contribute to the uh, massive, massive uh, polarization that is going on right now? You're asking me a question that would solve one of the greatest problems in the world. I don't have a quick answer for that. I mean, I'll tell you that, I think we're sort of at a point where uh, I'm not as forgiving or as chilled as you are. I, I feel strongly about my opinions and, you know, I'm growing less and less patient, especially around people who repeat racist tropes or just, you know, things that don't gel with, you know, the, the values that we've set for ourselves, both as photographers and as citizens of the world. Um, we, we, we just, we need to be more inclusive and we need to be more sensitive to the world in which we live and what we do to it and, and what we can contribute to it. So I'm not, I'm not as kumbaya as you are on that stuff. Um, but I think what we need to understand, I think is that there are opinions that are strongly held. And then there are opinions that we just have. I've learned that if you ask me about a topic, I will have an opinion on it. But the fact is A lot of these topics don't actually affect my day-to-day -day life. So a lot of people will get themselves, especially on social media, where you're anonymous, or at least you're not face-to-face, -face. you're sitting at a keyboard, it's late at night, you've had two glasses of wine, and suddenly you're about to blurt forth some opinion. Honestly, half these people writing stuff, they don't actually hold these opinions very high. So I think the first step is to stop taking everybody at face value and just letting stuff go. And... Actions speak louder than words. So you can type out all you want and you can yell out all you want. But actually, the thing that matters is what you do. 
Yeah, uh, of course, absolutely. But uh, you you said that you're not as, as kumbaya as me. Uh, that's uh, that's good that you're honest about that. If you're not somebody as kumbaya as me, how do you how do you fight efficiently? Because obviously, as you said, you have strong opinions. I know I have very strong opinions. Uh, I just happen to be like a semi hippie, so I can I'm I'm happy to let stuff go, and I'm happy to not judge people even if i think that they have very stupid opinions or they're completely not like on the on the right side of history let's say but let's say you have strong opinions you know what is right or at least you feel you know what is right and you want to do the right thing how do you fight efficiently how do you go about it without like alienating more people and actually like making the problem bigger as opposed to smaller i i You know, this may be above my pay grade. I, I think my mission is to conduct myself in the best possible way. I don't pick a fight with everybody. That's not what I do either. I just, you know, I go and I try and live a role model life. I have three teenage sons. I have a responsibility to show what I think is the right thing to do for my family, for my friends, for the people I work with, and for, you know, our visitors and customers and clients of all our different companies. And that's about as much as I can do. It's a beautiful and honest uh, answer. What? The, w- but what? What can you do as somebody who runs a company? Somebody who is the father of three children, like uh, with your children. You're, you said they're teenagers, yeah? Yeah, they're teen. Look, I mean, I'm doing what I can do. Look, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a business guy, right? So I've decided to run a company called Fotografiska, where we show work that can inform where our values and drive the events that we host, the kind of community, what we want to build. I could just as easily invest in something that might actually be more profitable or easier to run. Or so, so I think what I do is exactly this. I invest in things that I believe give me a voice in which I can try and make the world just a little bit better. And what is it that everybody in their life who is not an investor or an entrepreneur can invest in right now to focus on the things that do matter, focus on the things that can change change the world for the better, uh, focus on, yeah, basically providing more health, uh, wisdom and happiness. And and is there is there a special way in which you've tried to parent your children during these times? Because I could imagine that being a teenager, it's even more easy to get caught in a echo chamber or get caught in whatever social media group or uh, your age group and to be, uh, let's say, radicalized in a very uh, fast, uh, fast rate. Well, there's two moving parts. So, I mean, I think as a, as a, as a, person at, at Neue House, which is, you know, a company that is part of the Fotografiska Neue House family, um, we've always said, be kind, you know, just, just be, and I don't mean that in a hippie way. I mean, that literally like, just chill a little, just be a little bit generous to the people around you. Just give every, you know, don't take everything super personal. Just, you know, have a sense about the energy that you put out and just be a little bit kinder. As far as parenting goes, You know, I've only ever done it uh, with these three, so I don't really have a comparison. But when it comes to my kids, I'm lucky in the sense that I have um, very intelligent and also um, emotionally aware kids. And so the way that we talk about the world 
I do the best that I can. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it, you know, we, we, we talk about what we hear online. We watch movies together. There's a film that we recently watched called The Social Dilemma, which I recommend everyone with teenage kids that they should watch. Because I think there is, uh, like a lot of documentaries, I think it provides a basis for conversation from which you can learn and, and begin a dialogue and, and just talk about how people communicate, what the consequences are to the things that you say, and what the actions are that, that can ensue from that. Do you feel like we have a hope to get out of the social dilemma? No, once again, I actually remain surprisingly pessimistic. So my takeaway from this goes as follows. The social media companies are all American, um, which means that they are very much beholden to uh, American law and the process of passing laws there. And these companies have so much money, which means they have substantial dollars available for lobbying. And they may well turn out to be the new gun lobby, which means they will fight tooth and nail to never have any sort of recourse or any responsibility for any of the actions that they put the world through. And so what that means is that we have to teach our children real responsibility and an insight into what social media does what everything that we post means both to ourselves and to the people around us and that we frankly just need to put down the phone sometimes i have it so for me personally i've got social media some of it i have on my phone most of it i don't i have an ipad that i enjoy i keep that in my apartment so when i come home in the evening or so i will check my social media feeds there but i got to a point where even when i was you know waiting for an elevator or something like that i would whip out my phone and just immediately start scrolling and it was just a way to keep my eyes busy but this, this free moment of thinking is taken away from you. And I think we, we, we need to take a clear look at ourselves and see what does this do to us? What is this toxin that we let into our life? And what is the toxin that we put out to that? And so, again, I don't think we can rely on our governments to solve this for us. We have to take strong personal responsibility. It's the only way we can. It's, you know, same with smoking cigarettes or drinking too much or whatever it is. We all are ultimately responsible for our actions and what we do while under that influence. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Again, United States right now, uh, something very, very interesting happened, obviously. I'm sure you're aware of it. And uh, there was the yep. presidential election. Where do you see United States going? Do you see it heading in a positive direction right now? Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's boring punditry. I mean, all I'm going to do is repeat what I've heard from others. I, I don't know. I don't have a view to it. I, I really, um, I assume that this extreme right-wing faction under Trump will stay in permanent opposition. Trump will continue to declare himself a candidate, which will allow him to fundraise and at the same time uh, be a voice on media and have an unfettered access. And what he has done there is personal brand building, which is about him, but other people have enabled that by giving him money and by giving him a platform. And um, I think it's a fight for the soul of that country. And I hope the right side wins, but I don't know how it's going to play out. But are you hopeful for the Biden-Harris administration? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I don't. I'm not a. I'm not a political scientist. I would like a return to predictability and to a way of talking things through. Look, I am somebody who believes in working globally, and I have a great admiration in some ways for what we have accomplished. In many ways, for what we have accomplished in Europe. 
I still look at America. Look, I'm a Berliner. We had a wall around us. The Americans kept us free. I will forever look at America as a country that that offered a certain beacon on the hill with great journalism and great art and great fiction. When I grew up in the 70s and 80s, that was the place where the most interesting stuff was coming from. And the infrastructure to make substantial changes still exists. There is still an elective process by which they can do what they want. But having said that, I must also pay some respect to China. They have successfully moved 400 million people into the middle class who are buying phones, who are going out to restaurants, who are consuming culture. And as much as we have Fotografiska in North America and we have Fotografiska in Europe, it would be my great honor and ambition to also bring Fotografiska to China. So I think we all have to figure out a way to live together and you know make that happen. People oftentimes, especially in Europe and America, forget that China has a middle class that is as big as Europe. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a misunderstanding about China. I mean, China is fascinating. Look, there are 60 cities with over 10 million citizens each in China. If you're good, you can maybe name five or six of them. And there is a, a, a very large community of people who are ready, willing, and eager to consume culture, to contribute to culture, to be part of this world. And um, I admire that. I, I love spending time in China. I love spending time in the US. I love spending time in Europe. I travel nonstop for this job. And I can't wait to take what we do there and see how, how we can be part of that world. Uh, you also do art yourself. You're an artist, you're an entrepreneur, you do many, many things. You have a, a wide reach, uh, so to speak. Do you see that artists have, how can I say it? Do you see artists having a responsibility or uh, is there, this, this sounds so stupid, is there a right way or a, ro a wrong way to be an artist, especially in times of, of difficulties? Does an artist have a responsibility to like say the truth or to like uh, no. confront the power or uh, how do you see the role of the artist? No, I think there's a, I think there's a non-art, a, a lot of people who, who, who are, I, I think there's a difference between being an artist and being creative. I think there's this appreciation or this, this expectation I, I think for non-art people, they think that every artist should have, you know, a mission or a statement or a pain from which they make their work. And that's not an artist's responsibility. An artist's responsibility is to make art. Um, just like a songwriter, not every song needs to be about, you know, blowing in the wind. It's okay to write a love song and it's okay to just write a party song. And sometimes it's okay to just make a really incredible gentle melody. And it's, I think it's the same with artists. You know, I think not every artist has this mission to tell a story or to change the world. And, uh, Can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing? Because you said before that you were you were told that you have to go to real estate because that's what your family does. Are you a lone wolf in your family, or or does uh, uh, having uh, being interested in many different things uh, is it something that uh, runs in your family? No, that runs in my family. I mean, I come from a. I'm blessed in that I come from a family of smart people, and we've always been entrepreneurs. You know, as as German Jews, we had to start over several times. Um, first, the Nazis took everything from our family and frankly killed most of my family. It's um, my father and his father, my grandfather fled to Israel. And so he, or before that was Israel, and then there was the state of Israel. He, he grew up there. Then they came back. We got back some real estate. Then the communists took it. So, uh, you know, we were, uh, we had everything taken from us twice. Um, 
And then, um, so far, so good. This generation, we are doing well, and we've had to rebuild several times, and we're doing well. Um, I, I do believe, to some degree, you become what you hear at the dinner table. And I come from a family of entrepreneurs who really love building companies and, and building businesses. And we're excited by it, but we're also excited by art and culture and literature and journalism and the world. And so I was handed that particular gift basket and I'm grateful for it. Uh, I feel that uh, the Jewish people have a particularly strong connection to their roots. Like as much as I know some Jewish families, I feel like that Being a Jew and the um, history of the Jewish people is something that is very strongly given from generation to generation. Uh, is that also true in your family? And do you feel this is something that uh, is like one of the strengths basically of the Jewish people? Because we like in the Western world, we mostly know Jews by being very, very successful and uh, hardworking <laughs> and, and tough people. We all have our different tribes, and you can be part of more than one tribe, but it is certainly a tribe I feel strongly a part of, even though I am not religious at all. Nonetheless, I feel as a Jew, and it's certainly something I got from my father and my grandfather, and I pretty much uh, understand that my kids also feel like they're Jewish. I don't think it affects our day-to-day -day way of, of, of thinking or acting, but you know, I think there are different things that give you a sense of who you are and, and give you a tribe. And yeah, I like being Jewish. Not always been easy, um, but um, it uh, certainly informs how I look at the world to some degree. Uh, can you tell me the story of United Artists? It brought a smile to right. my face so you're to, see, of, you're to see that you're connected to it. <laughs> you're not thinking so united artists is a different company you're thinking of first artists um united Mistake. artists was founded in the 1920s by charlie chaplin and uh two other people but uh first artist was founded in 1970 by barbara streisand steve mcqueen paul newman Sidney poitier and clint eastwood and um i ended up buying that company uh and they produced films from 1970 to 1980 and then it went dormant so all that remained were the film rights and uh I, i i bought that set of film rights and then managed it we also produced a number of remakes some of which are still in production um we had the getaway which was originally done with paul newman and uh uh ali mcgraw and it was um directed by sam peckinpah a remake of that was made in the 1990s Um, we have Uptown Saturday Night and its two sequels, and that's currently in in pre-production. There's, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was it was really just a, a great company that was made by actors who were at the top of the game and wanted to create films that they had a greater ownership stake and a more creative stake. And also um, take risks with their typecasting. Not not all of which panned out, you know. I mean, they definitely made a couple of stinkers, um, but they also made some really great movies, you know. I mean, A Star Is Born with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson, um, or uh, like I said, the Sam Peckinpah movies or something. There's some really really great stuff in there. So, yeah. That that I I no longer own that. I sold that uh, in 2013. Okay. Um. Uh, yeah. I'm so, sorry. I messed up the name. The two very very similar names. But uh, well, they're they're actually very similar on purpose. I mean, those founders of that company wanted to evoke the spirit of United Artists, so they called it First Artist on purpose. That is, that you, you intuited that correctly. That that is how that came about. 
And uh, I'm going to change gears a little bit as well, because before you said that we just have to, you know, learn to chill a bit and uh, learn to let things go. Uh, what helps you to uh, sleep at night? So I sleep like a baby, which means I wake up every two hours crying. No, I'm kidding. I uh, <laughs> I don't sleep well. That is not my forte. I, uh, I worry and I fret and I get excited about the future and I... I'm not a particularly chilled person. But when I grow up, I definitely plan on chilling. I'm hoping to figure that out next. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that's going to happen. It's <laughs> <laughs> my plan. I'll, I'll ask a, a few more questions before we wrap up. Once more, uh, tell me, taking into account everything that happened over the past year and everything that we have coming up, what do people focus on too much and what do we focus on too little and what can we do differently to have this year be a bit more chill a bit more relaxed and a bit less uh, fighty than the year before i don't know i'm not a great advice giver because i don't necessarily look at my life and say hey you're doing everything right so i don't necessarily feel entitled to give anybody else great advice and maybe that's the first piece of advice I, the only thing i can say is uh, you know try and exercise you know put some oxygen in your brain get out there um and you know move your body and and move your brain put down the phone the social media is going to still be there when you pick it up the next time read a book and um turn off the screens tell me something about last year that you felt was uh, positive something that made you happy something that uh, inspired you last year was the which which one are we talking about the covid year or the year before that The I mean, COVID, I feel like I the, lost a year. The COVID year, yeah. I, wanna, I don't know about I, the COVID year, but I'll tell you about the year before that. I mean, the year before that was one of the greatest years of my life. We opened two photographers, one in Tallinn, one in New York. We were showing some of the greatest artists, which we are still doing, and I can't wait to get started again. Um, I opened a great restaurant uh, and, and, and bar and club here in Berlin called Klierchen's Ballhaus, which I'm a proud owner of and I'm very excited about. Um, I uh, we, we made investments in different companies that were really blooming i mean 2019 was one of the great 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 years of my grown-up life and so in that sense 2020 of course was a giant disappointment and i just can't wait to get started again but you know listen everybody i know and like is healthy frankly everybody i know and dislike is healthy so <laughs> i think it's um I just can't wait to start again. It's been hard, you know, uh, not just for me personally. I know people lost people and it's not something to make jokes about. And um, I know people are scared and I just think we'll be all right. And I can't wait to get going. That is a very beautiful answer, but still, I'm going to press you once more. All right, try because, it. Because what I'm trying to get out of people is I want to find the diamonds uh, in the in the dirt, so to speak. So tell me, last year, something that something that happened that was positive, something that made you happy, something that at least inspired you or uh, gave you hope. I think the way that people pulled together, I think that the response, look, I know America was a hard place last year. But if I look at the community in New York City of how people pulled together and understood what the future of America looks like as a country and as a society that wants to be clear about that everybody's welcome, regardless of your race or your, your cultural background or who you want to fall in love with or who you want to sleep with or how you identify, I think that's a... I think that's a really magical thing to have that moment of clarity and to say, hey, we are this. 
And we are going to push for this. And yeah, it sucks that there are people who are still fighting this so hard, but we are on the right side of history and that that matters and that inspires. That gives you the power to say, I'm going to keep pushing on that. Everything else is small. Nobody will care after I'm gone, whether this business did well or that business didn't, or whether this particular piece of work, artwork was interesting or not. What matters is that we push towards a world that we leave something behind for our kids that's just a step better. And I liked it. I think we did that. Beautiful. What excites you right now? Just the future. I like work and I like what we're doing and I'm excited about opening up again. What excites me now? I don't know. I want to go dancing. I wanna, it's dark and it's gray and it's January and it's, you know, I can't wait for spring. I can't wait to open back up. I can't wait to get dancing. Um, on the side, I have been um, gotten back together with my old business partner from the early 90s and he's continued to being a music producer chris sipple and i founded division records in 1991 we sold it in 1995 1996 so he's continued to be a music producer he ended up producing robbie williams and the pet shop boys and a bunch of other major acts and we took lockdowns and we said dude we're gonna start reproducing a lot of our old music and that went so so but then we started doing new tracks and so we've been putting out tracks. If you go on SoundCloud, it's under my name, Yoram Roth, you can see it. And we started posting the first tracks and that's got me excited because it's like a whole different creativity that I haven't used in a long time. And it also, when we play these tracks, we're like, oh, I can't wait to play these in the clubs, you know? So to not only to have a creative moment now, but to then get the fruits of that creativity later on when everybody's ready to go again. That's the part I'm looking forward to. Beautiful answer again. Two more questions for you. Uh, one is, uh, I know in Estonia, uh, with myself, with so many of my creative friends, and I'm sure all around the world as well, especially with people doing gig work, uh, freelancers and so on, have lost a huge amount of their income. Uh, I know so many people who are, if not panicked, then at least uh, worried and anxious about the future because uh, so far everything is still shut down. People have no idea how to make income and uh, especially it can be very, very difficult for creative people to try to like figure out a new way to make income when your only source of income is uh, when people come together and not on Zoom and not on like... Uh, internet uh, whatevers and so with somebody uh, with with a brain like yours what would be your uh, suggestion what your would be your uh, way to inspire those people um, I, I don't know that we can do much immediately, but first of all, I want to give some hope. Regardless of what, if we look back in history, notwithstanding the terrible, terrible wars of the 20th century, things go in waves and things are going to come back and there's going to be plenty of work very, very soon and plenty of opportunity to show showcase our creative results. I will say one thing though. I think I think there is still not enough attention on it. And I, I see it now, Germany is moving into an election year and I see the nature of the conversations. And I think a lot of people have not understood how important and how big gig work is. I think a lot of people are still looking at a very 1960s, 1970s model of full-time employment and potential unionization and protection of work um, in labor law. And I think there needs to be a whole new approach to uh, a, a number of things that we talked about today, communications and social media and so on, but but labor law pertaining to gig work is something that people should begin paying attention to 
taking a stand on and ensuring that these are voices that are heard because it's not going away and it actually is a really powerful tool for everyone involved to give people the freedom to have work when they want it but to also have some uh, uh, protection built in i think is important and there needs to be uh, um, people need to think about this Beautiful. And uh, one last question. You mentioned before the social dilemma. Uh, is there any other uh, piece of art, a book, a film, uh, anything else that you've seen in the past year or the past few years that you would definitely recommend? Well, to another thing, I mean, I think another, th well, another movie that I saw with my kids, again, is an important conversation to have is uh, there was a movie, I don't exactly know the title, but I think it's called Capital or or The Capitalist. It's based on Thomas Piketty's book from two, three years ago. And I think it's an important conversation to have. I think what we lack in schools is an education about how business works, how uh, the, the economy works, and what the different roles and responsibilities are in it. And there is sometimes almost a vilification of entrepreneurialism, this idea that somebody can only earn money if they're doing it on the backs of others, um, or on the contrary, there is sort of an unrealistic hyping around entrepreneurship where that is somehow like a great thing to do. I think you have to have a conversation with your teenagers and amongst yourselves and really understand what we can contribute to an economy and how we make that tick. Beautiful, Yoram. Is there anything else you want to tell people? Any any wishes for the coming year? No, I'm sure I'll remember that 20 minutes from now when we're done. <laughs> well, uh, no, I don't know. I am I'm upbeat. Let's 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 make the world a better place and let's work and let's have good meals and let's fall in love and let's build great companies and let's be nice to our kids and let's hope they like us when we're <laughs> older. So yeah, that's what we're doing. Beautiful, Yoram. Well, thank you very, very much uh, for speaking to me. Um, thank you. Thank you.